The sermon today is, is uh, difficult. It's over a difficult subject. And Jesus' words is challenging for us all. Uh, so I just got done praying, as I always do, for you to hear the word that he might say to you today and receive it. Um, but we have been working our way through Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preached how he came to completely fulfill God's law. He didn't come to discard the law, but he came to fulfill it. And we have seen how he has done that in a number of specific examples he used from the Old Testament law to show how God's perfect standards are perfect and beyond our reach, how we are completely unable to fulfill God's law as sinful human beings. When we are proud because we have never murdered, Jesus said, if you've ever been angry or insulted someone, then you've broken God's law by murdering in your heart. And if we are proud because we've never committed adultery, Jesus says, you've committed adultery in your heart and broken God's law if you've even ever lusted after someone. And Jesus points out that if you've ever lied or stretched the truth or misled someone in the slightest way, you've still broken God's law. And that's why Jesus came, because we were unable to fulfill the law, but Jesus came to fulfill it when we could not. Jesus gave up his divine rights as God. He came down to earth. He humbled himself as if he were a slave even though he was God. He was completely obedient to the law. He died for us on the cross as if he were a criminal, even though he was completely innocent. He died for us and thus paid our penalty, making it possible for us to be reconciled to God, to be completely clean and forgiven. It's important to keep all of this in context all this context in mind, and also to remember the historical situation of the Jewish people to whom Jesus preached 2,000 years ago. As we listen to his sermon, uh, his next part of his Sermon on the Mount, this comes from Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 38 through 42. You have heard the law that says, the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. I'll pause after that verse and point out that here, Jesus is reminding his listeners of the Old Testament law that is spelled out in Exodus 21-24, and also in Leviticus 24-20, and also Deuteronomy 19-21. The law that says, the punishment must match the injury, a life for a life. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. Now, when we hear the expression, an eye for an eye, today, many think of this as an argument for harsher penalties against criminals. Sometimes we see that penalties that, that criminals face may not be harsh enough in our opinion. And so we say it should be an eye for an eye, and we want harsher penalties. Uh, 
But the original intent of this law was actually to restrain people from overzealous vengeance. In the brutal tribal ways of the ancient world, if you, and this was before civilization had really taken hold, if you gouged out a person's eye, they would likely be very upset and they might respond by gathering up a war party to come to your village and kill you and your entire family because you gouged out their eye. Because they were angry about it and they wanted to get you back and your whole village. Unrestrained human vengeance can be a terrible and ugly thing. When someone hurts or insults us, it's human nature that we don't want to, we don't just want the wrong to be made right. We're angry and we want to make that person pay. And often we want to make them pay worse than what they did to us. We're going to get them back. And so God, knowing sinful human heart, gave the ancient Israelites a law to restrain their vengeance as they sought to live together in a civil society. He said, the punishment must match the crime. If they gouge out your eye, you gouge out theirs. If they take your life, you can take their life, but don't take the whole family's life. Don't go overboard in your lust for vengeance. But there's another principle at work in the Old Testament law as well. An individual can't be a vigilante. They can't extract retribution on their own. Somebody gouged out your eye. You can't just go back and gouge out theirs. You can't take the law into your own hands. The offender must take, the, the person must take the offender to the authorities and they must prove their case. The officials will judge if the offender is guilty and they will make the judgment about the appropriate punishment. That's a much better way to have a third party who's unbiased, who can hear the case, decide is this person really guilty and what is the appropriate penalty? Because if you leave it up to the person who had their eye gouged out, they might not be so fair because they're angry and they're hurt. And this is always important. You need a judge who's unbiased to hear the case and determine the punishment that matches the crime. Now, the problem for the Jews who were living in Jesus' day, to whom he was preaching, was that they were living under the occupation of the Romans. And the Romans were not always fair. And they were quite often guilty of abusing and committing atrocities against the Jewish people in Israel. Many in Israel felt they were justified in murdering Romans. After all, their thinking went, these Romans are nothing more than human animals, and we should treat them as animals. Many Israelites, though they could feel justified murdering Romans in cold blood, because their religious law said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a life for a life. But 
really the way they were thinking of it and using it, and sometimes even the way their religious leaders were using it, was a corruption of the spirit of the law. They were using it as an, as an excuse to do to, to, to find, to make their own vengeance, to take out their own vengeance on those who were oppressing them. But where does vengeance end? Where does revenge end? Human vengeance only begets more vengeance, never leads to peace or reconciliation. And we can, it never leads to justice. It never leads to peace. And we can see this in many places in the world. We can see this sometimes even in our own country where one group of people has felt to have been abused, mistreated, treated unfairly. And they want vengeance. They want payback. But where does payback end? Do we go back 50 years? Do we go back to when the English were mistreating the Irish in Europe 500 years ago? Do we look at the Middle East where uh, Jews and Muslims and Christians have been fighting one another for 2,000 years? Where does it stop? Has it worked out very well for one group of people to take vengeance upon another to settle the score? Somehow, the score never seems to get settled. And so Jesus speaks the truth. Going on in verses 39 through 42, he says, But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. In this section, Jesus names three offenses. A slap on the cheek, losing your shirt in court, and carrying a soldier's gear for a mile. You should also notice that every one of these offenses is something personal. That's important. What follows is about our own personal rights and our own selfish pride. It's not about laws or policies of the government or society as a whole. This is about personal behavior and personal attitudes and feelings. So often, we want to take religion and we want to use it as something we point out at everyone else But Jesus points it toward our own attitudes and personal behavior. Let's look at each one of the situations Jesus mentions. The first is Jesus' famous teaching to turn the other cheek, which has raised a lot of eyebrows over the years. Some even misunderstand and think Jesus rejects fighting back or self-defense for any reason. And that's not what Jesus is doing here. First of all, Jesus' original listeners knew turning the other cheek was about trading insults, not about self-defense. One of the worst insults a Jew could give to someone in the first century was a backhanded slap. 
Notice, Jesus said, if someone slaps you on the, which cheek? The right cheek. Okay. Imagine there's a guy standing here in front of me, and I'm right-handed, as is almost everybody except for Angela Stack, our secretary, lefty up there. There's a few lefty. If you're a lefty, raise your right hand. Okay. There's a few. Most of us are right-handed. And if there's a person standing in front of me and I slap them with my right hand, it would end up on their left cheek. The only way I could strike, I mean, it'd be, I guess you could do like that. That's really awkward. The real way you would do it to slap them on the right cheek would be this way. Right? Now, here's the thing. In first century, and in most of the Middle East today as well, it is considered extremely offensive, an extreme insult to slap someone backhandedly. Of course, it's also offensive to slap them this way. In the first century, you could take someone to court for slapping them, someone in the face. It wasn't so much that you were suing them because they committed violence against you. You're actually suing them for the insult. It was similar to what might happen today if, uh, if a newspaper printed a bunch of lies about a politician, I mean blatant lies, and then the politician sued the newspaper for libel, because, or a business would sue someone for libel because they insulted them in a way that damaged their reputation and caused them economic loss. Libel. Um, and that's what they would do if a Jew took someone to court because they had insulted them by slapping them in the face. And here's the thing. If, you, they, if it was a backhanded slap, the penalty was twice as much as if it was a normal slap because a backhanded slap was so much more offensive. So here we're seeing what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about personal offenses, insults. What do you do when you're insulted? When you feel insulted, what do you do? Well, it might depend. It might depend on who's insulting you. I thought about this. I was like, you know, kids insult adults frequently. And it never feels good to be insulted by a kid. But if you're a mature adult and a kid insults you, you take it a little differently than you would if it was another adult, right? I guess because the, the child is, they're immature. Maybe you can cut them a little slack. Maybe you get onto them, but it's just different. If it was a colleague who was equal to you and they insult you, now that's a whole different thing. So it might depend on what you would do. Or if you have a really big ego and you think of yourself as a big man, a big woman, someone important, and the insult hurts your pride, you may feel that you need to defend yourself or you need to take that person down a notch. If you are insecure and you may not feel very good about yourself... And somebody insults you, you, may feel like you need to fight back. I mean, you already don't feel adequate. And now this person has insulted you, and you can't just stand by and let them take you down even further. You've got to strike back. 
But what if you have no ego? What if you have no ego? What if you really don't care what people say about you? Because you don't care about their lies. What if you already know how much God loves you and and you really do feel secure in who you are and you really do know that God cares about you and, and you really care more about what God thinks and you don't care very much about what people think and they insult you? Well, that lands a little different too, doesn't it? Like, well, you can sort of let it go. Let it go off your back like water off a duck's back. Now think about this. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the most important person who ever lived. He had more reason than anyone to have a big ego and demand that people respect him. I mean, literally, he is God's gift to the world. You've known some people who think they're God's gift to the world, and you insult them, man, they're coming for you. Jesus literally was God's gift to the world. However, Jesus left the glory of heaven and his divine privileges, and he humbled himself to come down to our broken world. He bore physical and verbal abuse, knowing these did not change who he was. He turned the other cheek, he bore people's insults, and he calls his followers to take up their cross and follow his example. Because we are really royalty. We are kings and queens in the kingdom of heaven. And who cares what someone insults us, how someone insults us? The second offense that Jesus mentions is losing your shirt in court. Now think of that one for a minute. Suppose you are so poor that all you have for someone to take from you in court is the shirt off your back. That's pretty bad. And the person suing you is so mean-spirited, lacks compassion to the point that they would actually take your clothes from you in the court of law. Jesus says, give it to them. And give them your coat too. You'll have to sleep without a shirt, without a coat at night, and be freezing and shivering naked. Have you ever felt like even the government or the legal system that's supposed to protect you and the courts are supposed to watch out for the innocent, do you ever feel like they're corrupt and they are actually abusing you? The Jews in Jesus' day certainly did. I don't care how much we feel that that may, be, may or may not be the case for us, but they lived under the Roman occupation and it was corrupt and the Romans didn't care about them and the, the Jews and the government leaders, that the corrupts that were supposed to protect them were corrupt as well. But Jesus says, that's still not an excuse, an excuse to take matters into your own hands and to seek personal vengeance. And lastly, Jesus points to a real-life situation Jews faced regularly. There was a law in Jesus' day that required any Jew over the age of 12 to carry a Roman soldier's gear for up to a mile if he was asked. So we're talking about his armor, his weapons, his 
you know, his soldier's pack with all the supplies in it, something that would be heavy for a grown man to carry. And yet these Jewish uh, people over the age of 12 were required, if asked, to carry that gear for up to a mile. And it was a way for the Roman authorities to sort of rub it in the face of those that they were in charge of, saying, we are your uh, we, we basically own you. We can do anything to you we want. We can even force you to carry our gear for us up to a mile. And Jesus is obviously pointing to this despised Roman law with his statement in verse 41. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. And here is where we get the common modern express, expression To go the extra mile, meaning to go above and beyond what's required of you. But would you really be excited about going above and beyond fulfilling a mean-spirited law made by your occupiers to benefit your enemy while shaming you? Jesus' way of living is radical, it's different. He tells his followers not to seek vengeance and even to set aside their personal rights for the sake of God's kingdom, trusting God to be the judge and to take care of them. And Jesus goes even further. Jesus doesn't want his followers to resent these sacrifices. Jesus wants people, his people, to go above and beyond in their willingness to set aside their ego, to set aside their pride and even their personal rights. Put it all in God's hands as the ultimate judge. Vengeance is the Lord's, not yours. If you feel overwhelmed, or if living like this is impossible, you're not wrong. (laughs) That's part of the point. As with his previous arguments, Jesus is showing that we really aren't capable of living up to God's glorious standard. When we think we're good enough, the law shows us we fall short. We need a Savior, not only to save us from our sin, but also to enable us to live the way Jesus challenges us to live. See why I said this was a difficult sermon? I don't really know what to tell you. I wish I could give you some practical steps uh, or explain this away in some way or another. But all I can do is lay what Jesus said before you and let you go home wrestling with it. So that's what we're going to (laughs) do. Maybe the closing hymn is sort of fitting. Sweet hour of prayer. (laughs) We need to pray about things like this. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing this prayer, this song about prayer. And then after we sing the song, then we'll invite the confirmands to come forward for the confirmation. As they join this crazy, ridiculous family and 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 and. and Try to live out these incredibly challenging words 
that Jesus calls us to live.